This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. We've got a guest that has been recommended by a few of our expert investors and in preparing for the interview... I'm pretty excited to have this conversation. I think there's going to be a lot of fascinating insights and it's going to be very wide ranging. So this is a very exciting episode to get stuck into. Absolutely. It is our pleasure to welcome Victor Schwetz to the show. Victor, welcome to Equity Mates. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So Victor is a Managing Director, Head of Asia Pacific and Global Strategy at Macquarie Group. He has also just released a book called The Great Rapture, Do We Need to Be Free? Three Empires, Four Turning Points, and the Future of Humanity. The book pulls together history, economics, geopolitics, and psychology to try and map how the missteps of key empires in the past can help us prepare for a very uncertain future. And it's had a great launch recently, number one on robotics, new release on Amazon US. And it was also robotics and political economy bestseller on Amazon Australia and named the best post-capitalism book by book authorities. So there's a lot to cover in that, and we're very keen to understand what is going on in markets at the moment, Victor. But before we do, we'll start with our overrated, underrated game, Ren. That's it. So, Victor, we like to uh, throw out a few different indexes, themes, or investing ideas just to get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated at the moment. And we like to start with some of the major indexes. So. If we start in the US, overrated or underrated, the S&P 500 index? It's a great question. My personal view is that S&P 500 reflects so many great companies with so many themes that over the longer term, I'm still a great believer that SPX or S&P 500 has a great future. Now, the question is shorter term, whether you believe there can be some pullbacks. And I think the answer is yes. Uh, But longer term, I'm a great believer in America. Then let's bring it back home a bit. Overrated or underrated the ASX 200? 
don't follow Australia that much, to be frank. I tend to look more at global indexes. So I can't really help you there, except just one, uh, one point. Uh, Australia traditionally manages to find its way through a great deal of difficulties. And again, like with the United States, uh, I, I, I do believe that Australia actually has a great future. But in terms of indexes, I don't really follow Australia that much. Our Australian fellow strategists are doing that. Emerging markets are a really interesting investment option, but uh, we're interested to hear your thoughts. So overrated or underrated investing in emerging markets? Longer term, emerging markets as the indexes have no right to exist, primarily because uh, emerging markets as a concept no longer exist. The whole idea of emerging markets in the past was that they will be able to grow faster and catch up and converge to developed markets. And as that happens, you're going to have plenty of middle class, plenty of opportunities to grow, etc. To my mind, all the avenues for growth uh, for emerging markets are closing. That includes manufacturing, that includes trade, that includes globalization. And so the ability of emerging markets to progress forward are extremely, extremely limited. And that's why I mostly tend to emphasize Northeast Asia to a lesser extent India, because there are places in emerging markets which I think will survive this world a lot better. But as a concept, of convergence, of faster growth rates, I think emerging markets no longer really have as much relevance as they used to 15, 20, 30 years ago. So Victor, COVID-19, obviously having some pretty significant impact across markets and a lot of countries around the world, overrated or underrated the Federal Reserve's response to COVID-19? To me, the COVID-19 basically accelerates all the trends that we have seen before. So if you think of global financial crisis, so if you think of 1987, that was the beginning of your massive monetary stimuli all around the world. Uh, if you think of COVID-19, what it does, it massively stimulates fiscal spending. And I think alternatives to what Australia has done or what US has done or any other country would have been one of the most severe depressions globally. So to me, it was an appropriate response. And also to me, it's an inevitable continuation of everything we've done since the Black Monday of 1987 when Greenspan introduced his put option. So Victor, Bryce asked you about the Fed's response to COVID-19. I might zoom out a little bit and ask you about central banks more broadly. So overrated or underrated? the concept of central banks. To me, I personally believe that central bank's independence and the idea of central bank independence is grossly overrated. At the end of the day, central banks are owned by people of the country. At the end of the day, they are owned effectively by the treasury departments. And so nobody is truly independent. Everybody is part of some kind of political process. And so to me, what is important about central banks uh, is that they have a very important political function to perform. When people say central banks, whether it's Greenspan, whether it's Janet Yellen, uh, whether it's Bernanke, they really have done a terrible job creating this sort of debt level and financialization that we're suffering from. When people say that, I usually answer, if you want to know the guilty party, look yourself in the mirror. It's you. 
It's not central banks. Central banks basically delivered on what you people wanted. And what people generally globally wanted is to grow, to have higher and higher wealth, even though in many cases their productivity could never justify it. So the way system worked is that central banks delivered on the promise that they're given to you, even though that promise could not be fulfilled in a conventional economic sense. So, Victor, an asset that generally performs well in times of market turmoil is gold. So, overrated or underrated, gold? Gold, to me, is not a replacement for monetary system. It can never be. If you try to put gold at the heart of the monetary system, pretty much everybody would need to recognize that uh, the houses they're living in are not really worth what they pay for them. Everybody will have to recognize that we have huge accesses in a system that we've built up over the last 30 or 40 years. So the only role gold performs is an insurance policy. And gold basically performs like a tips or inflationary break-even rate. If you really are concerned that debasements of currencies, debasement of cryptocurrencies, the potentially significant inflationary outcomes are on the horizon, gold is a perfect hedge and a perfect insurance policy. But gold can never be, again, in my view, the basis of our monetary policy. If you don't think gold could be the basis of our monetary policy, there is another asset class that gets a lot of people on Twitter very excited. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. So overrated or underrated Bitcoin? If you think of distributed ledger, sort of uncontrolled currencies, again, just like gold, uh, they have a value. And the value is that essentially we are all residing in a version of a Ponzi scheme and have been for quite some time. So if you're concerned that that scheme is coming to the end, just like gold, Bitcoin provides you with a, with a sort of the backstop. But to be a global replacement of currencies, again, it doesn't work. Now, there are two problems with both gold and Bitcoin. First of all, it doesn't mean that if you have gold or something else that you can't have asset bubbles. Some of the biggest asset bubbles historically were under the gold standard. And the second thing to remember, if you remove central banks and if you put gold or some version of gold or metal as a basis of monetary system, that will significantly restrict ability of governments to manage cycles. So if you were to say to people, would you like to transform a recession into 10-year depression? The answer almost universally is no, I don't want that. Under the gold standards, depressions quite often were very extensive. They could last a decade or longer. And that's the way conventional liberal capitalism is supposed to work. You're supposed to clean out. You're supposed to eliminate accesses. But that is not the way modern societies work. And I don't think anybody will accept that. So, Victor, before we jump into some further details about markets at the moment and your book, we always like to get a bit of an idea about your background. Are you able to tell us the story of your very first investment and perhaps any major lessons that you learned from it? Yeah, I, I've been, uh, I guess, historically speaking, I've been in, in various versions of investment banking. 
since uh, uh, earlier 1980s in Australia, but also in uh, Hong Kong, in New York, in London, in Moscow, pretty much everywhere globally. And I was and continue to be very active primarily in equity markets. The best call I made, I guess, was on uh, Adelaide Steamship Group in Australia back in late 1980s, where I have tried and been reasonably successful predicting that there are major problems that that conglomerate was facing. Inversely, one of the worst calls was also in Australia, because I was one of the people who actually thought that Christopher's case and Quintax will survive. Now, for a lot of your listeners, names like Adelaide Steamship, Quintax, Bond Corp, Elder Saixel, Briley's probably don't mean much. Very foreign. But in the 1980s, those were some of the larger names. Similarly, I backed in earlier years Rupert Murdoch and News Corp when it was still a relatively small group. And, uh, and I was expecting that group to get much, much larger as time progressed. There are many other calls one makes, but there are some over 35 years or whatever, but some calls are sort of imprinted on your brain. And calls like News Corp, Adelaide Steamship, like uh, Quintax are truly imprinted. Outside of Australia, I've become renowned in the past uh, uh, big calls on the U.S. telecom and cable companies. Again, Nextel in the U.S. was an example of a major call I've made in Europe uh, on Deutsche Telekom, for example. So there is a whole range of calls that you make. In As a strategist, probably my biggest call over the last uh, 10 years was my belief that neither value nor mean reversion ever are likely to come back. That's a big call that value is never likely to come back. And uh, we're keen to unpack that a little bit more as we discuss today. I guess the, the way we want to structure this conversation is to start with, get a few of your thoughts on today's markets and some of the things that we're seeing at the moment, and then move into the book and unpack a lot of the themes and a lot of the information that you have in there. And then finally close it out by tying it all together and talking about what it means for people like Bryce and I, people listening to the show and how they can think about it going forward. So if we start with today's markets, obviously with with COVID, we're seeing a number of unprecedented economic policy settings and some unprecedented activity in financial markets. So I guess, what are you saying today? How are you making sense of it all? And are there changes that we're seeing during COVID that have changed markets forever? I think when we we sort of touched upon a second ago that I don't view COVID as necessarily breaking new ground. I think that will be historically and intellectually incorrect. The way I look at it is that every time we encountered a challenge, and that challenge I usually start counting from my first major setback, which was Black Monday of 1987 and the Greenspan put. Or if you look at 1991, or if you look at Asia-Pacific crisis of 97, or if you look at dot-com in 2000-2001, global financial crisis 2008, and if you look at pandemic of 2020, every time we encountered those sorts of challenges, 
public and the politics basically insisted that we must fix the problem rather than rebase our economies. Now, what it implied, of course, for about 30 years that we were using monetary levers more and more aggressively. And as you use monetary levers so aggressively over such an extended period of time, it distorts the economies, it distorts capital markets, it distorts financial markets. It creates more disinflation rather than inflation. It restricts growth opportunities. It massively increases income and wealth inequalities. So for the last five or six years, policymakers were already shifting towards fiscal spending, not monetary spending. And in fact, increasingly more and more, investors were tolerating higher and higher deficits without really penalizing those countries. And so what COVID-19 has done is moved us up to the next level in fiscal spending rather than just monetary. What we need as a next step, and we're going to have another dislocation a couple of years down the track, whether it's a a market dislocation or pandemic, what we need is, in my view, to fuse fiscal and monetary levers and introduce different style of policies, not because they will reestablish some version of liberal capitalism, that's no longer possible, but rather it will provide with a bridge into the future, which is much more uncertain. And it will help us navigate what's going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. So to me, COVID-19 doesn't do anything other than very dramatically accelerates the trends that were with us now for quite a number of years. Nice segue. You mentioned there that rather than re-baseline our economies as we hit these points we're just trying to i guess solve the problem which leads to the concept of this debt bomb are you able to explain what is the debt bomb perhaps when it started and how we've got to this point yeah well one of the things i discuss in the book is why have we started to financialize so aggressively in 1980s if you go back to 50s and 60s and 70s even in 80s most economies require no more than one one dollar fifty of debt for every dollar of gdp however from late 1980s it started to escalate and today we need at a minimum three or four dollars for every dollar of gdp so what happened why have we mushroomed the debt levels globally from 100 percent to 350 percent why financialization or the value of financial instruments have gone from 100 percent to something in excess of 500 percent of global economy Why did we do that? The answer to me, and that's where I was arguing that you really have to look yourself in the mirror and blame yourself rather than blame Federal Reserve or anybody else, is that my answer is that productivity growth rates in most developed countries started to slow down in 1970s and 1980s. For most emerging markets, it's become reality over the last sort of decade or so. And as productivity slows down, you have a choice. Do you accept that you no longer deserve the money you get paid? Do you accept that you no longer deserve the wealth you have? And perhaps your children will not have the same future. By and large, the answer from the electorates, whether it's democratic or not, was no, I do not accept that. So the only politically and socially acceptable solution was to bring future consumption to the present, was to leverage, was to play assets. So if you go back to 50s and 60s, 
house was a place where you were cooking your meals or looking after your children. By late 80s, early 90s, it became an investable asset class. And so increasingly, more and more consumers and households realize that if you rely on your wages, And if you rely on your household chattels, like cars and refrigerators, that's a recipe for poverty, oblivion, and irrelevancy. The only way you can get ahead in a financialized world is through asset classes and leveraging. And the households embrace that. Corporates made exactly the same judgment through this period. And that's why asset prices have become a guiding post, whether you do share buybacks or investment. But as you progress through this period over the last 20 or 30 years, what happened is that asset prices become the essence of our economies. And so central banks then just could no longer allow volatility of asset prices. So gradually, they started to contracting and corralling and controlling volatilities because any volatility of asset prices will have an immediate impact on the ground. Consumers suddenly will not spend or splurge. They will save. Corporates suddenly will not invest. And very quickly, you will find it got very, very cold on the ground. So what we've done, essentially, we created a cloud of finance over the ground that at least five times size of GDP. So in my olden days, when I started as an analyst, real economy was a dog and financial economy was a tail. Today, it's the other way around. Financial economy is a dog and the real economy is a tail. And the objective of central banks' policies essentially become to avoid the dog sitting on a tail. And hence, if we continue this monetary policies the way we've done over the last several decades, ultimately zero volatility will be the only acceptable answer. And that is why we need to change policy tools. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what are the implications of this ongoing? So how should we be thinking about this? Is it sustainable? No, but there is no going back either. (laughs) This idea that somehow you will recreate sound money, this idea that somehow you will recreate free market signals, 
That train left the station several decades ago. The, the ability to actually do that doesn't exist. So it's not a question of going back. It's a question, how do we move forward? And the way I look at it is that private sector will no longer drive productivity. Private sector signals have been distorted and muted to an extent that they're no longer conveying any meaningful messages. And therefore, uh, the question is whether it's up to public sector to move us forward. You know, you could ask anybody in the audience, would you rather have gross or not? Would you rather have high income or not? Would you rather have more wealth or less wealth? Almost everybody would prefer high growth and more wealth. When you ask them, that does imply that public sector will have to become more aggressive. The answer for all, almost all people will be yes. Well, if that's a price we need to pay, that's a price we need to pay. And if you tell those people, but you know it's not totally sustainable, and we would be better off for a period of 10 years clearing the excesses. And yes, it might be painful. Yes, your house might not be worth what you paid for it. But believe me, ultimately, you're going to be better off. How how many votes do you think I will gather if I was running on this platform? The answer is probably myself, my wife would have voted for me, and that's about it. So the question is not going back. The question is going forward. And one of the things I discussed in the book is that there are so many distorting elements now working through our system, from technology to demographics to financialization and its impact. There are so many distorting elements that it's not even clear what the final outcome looks like 10, 20, 30 years from now. The only thing we can do now is try to keep the Humpty Dumpty on the wall as much as we can. And the way to do it is for much more aggressive public sector. And when people talk about debt bomb, I never fully understand what is meant by that. For most countries, the debt is self-financing. Now, it doesn't apply to every country. Of course, a lot of emerging markets borrow in foreign currencies extensively. But for countries that have monetary sovereignty, in other words, they issue their own currency, they use their own currency, and the largely borrow in their own currency. National debt is a debt you owe it to yourself. You don't actually owe it to anybody else. And by repaying the debt, you're not necessarily making yourself that much better. So to me, I don't fully understand the debt bomb for most countries. I think anybody who believes that $260 trillion of global debt or $500 trillion of global financial instruments will ever be repaid. If anybody believes that, good luck. I mean, I don't know how that is possible. The only thing we're doing is doing slow burn default. But slow burn default can also continue only for so long. So none of those things are sustainable truly in the conventional capitalist way. Uh, none of them are sustainable within purely private sector-driven model, but we need to move forward on the bridge. We can't go back. And the way forward are some of the ideas which were regarded as incredibly fringe only five, ten years ago, which has gone mainstream. And that is equivalence of modern monetary theory. That's an equivalent of perpetuals, which don't have any value because those bonds never get repaid. In other words, some version of merging fiscal and monetary policies together and enabling public sector to invest and to drive the cycles much more aggressively. 
So Victor, you mentioned modern monetary theory there, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. Maybe for people who are unfamiliar with the theory, if you can just give a quick definition for MMT, and then, um, yeah, we're interested to hear your thoughts on the theory. Monetary theory is neither modern nor monetary. It's actually a very, (laughs) very old idea. And the idea is essentially very, very simple. What it basically says is if we have economies which have spare capacity, and uh, one of the things we can highlight that we don't even know how to calculate capacity anymore because we are intangibly driven and intangibles have almost no capacity constraints. But if we have a spare capacity in the economy, and if If at the same time, private sector productivity cannot really drive us to a point that satisfies sort of societal demands for growth rates, then is it responsibility of public sector to lead the charge? And if it is a private public sector uh, responsibility to lead the charge, how do you finance that public sector? And the answer is financing through taxation doesn't make a great deal of sense. Instead, what you can do, you can connect central banks directly to government financing, and then there will be no debt created as a result of this financing. And how you balance your economies is then through taxation and fiscal means. And so if we were to argue that today we have access capacity, if we were to argue that today our demand is somewhat subdued, if you're also to argue that our capacity limitations are disappearing beyond the horizon as intangibles become larger and larger part of our economies. And if you also were to argue that private sector is unable and unwilling to drive productivity and growth at a level that society finds acceptable, then financing public sectors through central banks become your answer. The problem, however, is that most people will argue if you give politicians free money and if you allow them to spend as much as they like, they will overspend. And not only they will overspend, but they will run into severe capacity bottlenecks eventually, inflation will take off, the bond and equity markets will crash, and economies will crash. That's what the history tells you in the past has happened. And so the question that becomes, which countries can adopt it efficiently, which countries are not able or capable of doing it? If you're capable of doing it, how would you structure it? Uh, And so I don't think we're going straight into MMT policy immediately. But if you think what we've been doing for the last 10 years, what is the difference between MMT and what Bank of Japan is doing? Japanese government issues bonds and BOJ immediately buys it. So what is the difference? BOJ already, Bank of Japan, are already sitting on 51% of Japanese government paper. If you were consolidating Japan as one entity, that debt no longer exists because it will be eliminated on consolidation. If you think of uh, managing the yield curve, Reserve Bank of Australia does it, BOJ does it, in many ways ECB does it, everybody wants Federal Reserve to do the same. What does managing yield curve means? Well, it means that central banks determine both quantity and price. Remember, in a liberal capitalist society and economy, central banks will either determine the price or the quantity, but you can't determine both. But right now, that's what's happening. Central banks determining price 
and quantity. If we determine price and quantity, why do we need prime dealers? Actually, why do we need commercial banks at all? when central banks are determining all of those outcomes. And so the question is, when people are against MMT, when people are against perpetuals that have no value, if people are against the fusion of monetary and fiscal policy, the question to ask, aren't we doing it already? Isn't what Federal Reserve does right now? Is Bank of England not directly funding the government? Is Australia not in the same page? And the only difference is that instead of pretending that that's not occurring, and instead of trying to keep some kind of free market signal, MMT just goes all the way through and says, we don't need any of that stuff. Now, I don't think politically or publicly we are ready for a fully-fledged MMT. But a version of MMT is already been practiced everywhere around the world. And not just because of COVID-19, it actually goes back all the way to, in the case of Japan, to early to mid-1990s. In the case of the rest of the world, it really goes back to 2007, 2008. So, Victor, you said that the biggest risk with MMT is that economies pump uh, too much money in, they hit bottlenecks, there's inflation and the economy crashes. But if it's managed correctly and it's structured correctly, it could work. Does that mean you think that, you know, with proper uh, regulatory framework, with, you know, the right decision makers leading, that MMT actually could be implemented and could be effective? Yes, it could be. Essentially, what you need is three things. You need, first of all, monetary sovereignty. As I said earlier, you issue your own currency, use your currency, borrow in your own currency. So a lot of emerging markets don't have that prerequisites. Some do, like China. And quite a few developed countries actually fully or pretty much fully satisfy those criteria, this criteria. For example, US and Japan fully satisfies that. UK, Australia almost fully satisfies that. And we can just go on through the list. A lot of developed countries do. Now, the second thing you require, as you correctly said, you require proper institutions of state and governance. So you don't have Mugabe's and Kirshner's and Maduro's. Because if you want to create Zimbabwe, it's very easy to do that. You can do it overnight. (laughs) And so you have to have proper institutions of state. And the third thing you need is that, remember I mentioned capacity utilization, you need to have demand and supply curve moving together. You can't have severe supply side bottleneck occurring. So again, in the case of most developed countries, that condition is also satisfied. But for a lot of emerging markets, that condition clearly is not satisfied. So there are some constraints on what you can do and how you can do it and who can adopt it, who can't adopt it. But the key question to ask is not whether politicians will go crazy. The key question to ask, what is the alternative? If you don't do MMT, and if you continue to use primarily monetary levers, what will happen to your country and what will happen to the world? If we continue to aggressively use monetary levers, which basically means money stays in a cloud of finance, most of it never finds its way to people on the ground. The net outcome will be, number one, more disinflation. The more aggressive your monetary policy becomes, actually, ironically, the more disinflation, not inflation, that you're creating. Secondly, the growth rates will become narrower and narrower. Thirdly, income and wealth inequalities will continue to mushroom all around the world. You find most investable strategies will just disintegrate. You find social pressures within the countries 
will escalate because people will be moving in different directions at different speeds. Geopolitical tensions will escalate as different countries will be moving in different directions, different speeds. Eventually, you might not be able to keep societies intact. So you have to change the policy tools. And so there is only two alternatives. You either try to rebase your economy and be prepared for very complex, very painful transition period. Alternatively, you embrace different types of tools. And so to me, it's not that MMT is necessarily the best idea out there. It's just it's one of the ideas that is circulating that can help you on this transition as you go forward. The key to MMT is not is not that you're aiming to inflate or even reflate. The key to MMT is that you're slowing down the strong disinflationary pressures that we are experiencing globally. And if you combine the MMT policy with much stronger income and wealth redistribution policies, then at the same time, you have a chance to take the sting out of the social dislocation that most countries are experiencing. Now, at the end of that bridge, as I said in the book, the first 30 or 40, if you start counting 70s, 80s, for the first 30 or 40 years on this bridge of transition, we were basically in a monetary world. If you think of the next 20 or 30 years on that bridge, it is not going to be monetary. It's going to be some kind of a fusion of fiscal and monetary. What lies beyond that 20 years or 30 years from now, nobody knows. And that's why we're asking, is it capitalism or communism? Is it feudalism or despotism? Is it nirvana and a utopia or is it Mad Max? Nobody really knows what's on the other side of the bridge, but that is several decades uh, from now. And, and the book that I published basically tries to explain what are the key drivers to get us there. I mean, if we end up like Mad Max, it'd be pretty crazy, that's for sure. <laughs> Victor, you speak of wealth distribution policies, and we'd love to get your thoughts on universal income or universal basic income. Is this something that you believe we're going to see within our lifetime in the next sort of 20 years? Where does that play a role in all of this? Well, we're already seeing it today. The government's already replacing checks. They're already replacing salaries. They're guaranteeing a certain level of minimum income that the citizens of the country are going to enjoy going forward. So essentially, just like MMT, universal or basic income guarantee, are not a new idea. That's a very, very old idea as well. But in a more sort of baby boomer environment, you know, baby boomers were all about efficiency, all about freedom and choice, get the government government out of my face so I can do the things I want to do. In that sort of a baby boomer world of late 70s, 80s, 90s, earlier part of 2000s, idea of guaranteeing somebody's income was just ludicrous. The idea was that you create lazy people. You're not maximizing your productivity. Now, the problem, as as I discuss in the book, the problem is that the challenge people are facing is not being lazy or exploitation. The problem is irrelevancy. People are increasingly becoming less and less relevant from an economic perspective. In other words, people are no longer the key drivers of productivity globally, which is totally unlike 
19th and 20th century, where people were the key productivity drivers. And that's why you needed to educate them. That's why you needed to skill them, because people were the brains of the machines. Increasingly, people had to specialize in narrow and narrow niches. Now, what has been happening for the last uh, two decades is gradually people are getting disintermediated from fruits of their labor. The first people to feel it would have been vice president and middle managers. Then it was entertainers. Then it was journalists. Then it was fund managers, analysts. Now we're moving from data digits to atoms. So increasingly, it's starting impacting manufacturing, logistics, distribution. Within the next 10, 15 years, most factories will disappear. Most supply and value chains disintegrate on a global basis. And beyond that, which is 25, 30, 40 years from now, it's a singularity. And a singularity is basically when you satisfy Turing test that you can't differentiate human versus non-human contribution. But that will be impacting PhD students, computer science graduates. And so as you progress through this sort of uh, gradual irrelevancy, you go from entertainers and journalists uh, on to truck drivers, which eventually, who eventually will feel it, to construction workers who eventually will feel it, to graduates in computer science, to writers, to to pretty much anybody. And so the question is, as marginal contribution of labor and as a marginal utility of labor declines, what do you replace it with? How do you make sure that people maintain certain standard of living and that, that people can discover themselves? You know, maybe you shouldn't be a podcaster. Maybe you're only doing it because that's the only way to make money. Maybe what you should be doing is digging trenches. You really love doing it, but you can't see how you're going to make money out of this. And so what minimum income guarantee does is not create lazy people, but what it does, it basically removes the slavery of labor in a time when labor is becoming smaller and smaller proportion of the cost base, is becoming less and less relevant as a contributor to productivity. And what you're going to see in the next uh, 20 years will be far more disruptive than the previous 20 years. Now, a lot of people say, Victor, you're talking about technological progression, and that's very true. And we had many technological revolution before. That's very true as well. But remember, information age has a waterfront at least 300 times bigger than industrial revolution and the speed of change at least 10 times faster. That's why I agree with McKinsey when they calculated that the impact of information age is 3,000 times. And so what you need to remember when you look at a buggy driver becoming a truck driver, soon there will be no truck drivers. And by that stage, what exactly would a truck driver do? So it's a much wider waterfront much deeper waterfront of disruption. And the other thing is when we talk of prior industrial revolution, we don't really feel the pain of people who suffered through it. One of the things I refer to in my book, if you suddenly transport it in, into the past and find a bunch of Luddites just about to smash a cotton loom, and you go there and, and you say to those guys, please don't smash the loom. Believe me, in 30 or 40 years' time, everything is going to be fine. I wonder whether they will think you're really kidding, because 30, 40 years was the entire life. And the same applies to us. 
the last 20 years and the next 20 years will ease a period of transition. And it so happens to be our lifetime. Our grand-grandchildren will not remember what we have gone through. And they will argue everything was fine. And it would be fine. It's just a question, how do you navigate uh, the next couple of decades? And the objective of the book was trying to identify how can we do it better without excessive dislocations, wars, and other terrible things that actually could theoretically happen. So, Victor, we've mentioned the book a few times, and we're getting into a lot of the topics that you cover in the book. So for people uh, that want to look it up, I might just give everyone the title. It's titled The Great Rupture, Do We Need to Be Free? And it's available now, so people should definitely check it out. We'll include a link to it in the show notes if people want to go there. But I want to pick up on what you're saying about the rate of change uh, being so much faster than with previous societal upheavals like the Industrial Revolution. I found a quote from another interview you did. I want to read it to you and then get you to expand on it a bit. So you said, uh, in a sense, we're saying if somebody woke up in the 2040s or 2050s, he will not recognize the year 2000. He will not recognize even the year 2010. Jobs, what it means to be human, Why is it important that we turn up and work? Why is society structured around jobs? Why do we get educated? And then you suggest that in the 2040s or 50s, the campus of Harvard will be closed for lack of demand. That concept of someone 50 years from now not even recognizing today's society, it's a big thought to try and get your head around. So I guess, can you help us try try and get our head around it? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, going from a feudalism into capitalism. If somebody, you know, went to sleep in the 13th century, wake up in the 15th century, he wouldn't have seen much of a, a difference. If somebody would have gone to sleep in the 15th, 16th century and woke up in the year 1900, he would not have recognized anything, pretty much. And that's the sort of scope of transition that we are discussing. Remember the aspect essence of capitalism is capital and its labor. If capital no longer functions the way it has been over the last three to 500 years, and if labor no longer functions the way it has been over the last 300 years, then capitalism as an idea no longer exists. You can call it whatever you like. And I must say, my publisher was telling me that I shouldn't sprinkle as many words about communism in my book, that people will just, that people will just, hang, up, that people will just hang up on one word and they won't be able to pass it. But nevertheless, I kept it. And the reason I kept it, very simple, that when people say communism has failed, That is incorrect. How could something fail when it has never been tried? What we regard as communism is not what Karl Marx felt communism is all about. Communism is supposed to be a society of such a high standard of productivity that neither capital nor labor works the same way. And coincidentally, it's not just Karl Marx. Uh, John Maynard Keynes in 1930 wrote the piece much more polemical piece about our grand f- the future of our grandchildren. And what he was saying is that the biggest dilemma we're going to face four generations from now is what do we do with our life when productivity will be at such a level that the slavery of labor is no longer required? How do we entertain ourselves? How do we find satisfaction? If it's not in jobs, money, success, 
What else is going to drive us? If you go back to 1980s, 90s, uh, Peter Draka, David Warshaw, many other people were pretty much debating the same ideas. So it's not just Karl Marx, but the idea is similar, i.e. it's a society of very high level of productivity. Now, today, the reason our productivity cannot rise, because effectively, as I said in the boot, warehousing people in temporary bullshit occupations. And by the way, bullshit jobs is not my phrase. There is a great professor at London School of Economics, and he wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs. And what bullshit jobs are is essentially a job, <clears throat> is essentially a job that uh, even the person performing that function doesn't believe adds any value at all. And right now, when he did surveys across Europe, he found up to 40, even 50% of white-collar employees already believe that their jobs are bullshit jobs. And the reason we're warehousing people in the sort of bullshit jobs pending sort of their final disposal in a way in which society finds uh, acceptable or palatable, the reason we're doing it is technology gradually reduced utility and value of labor, but technology has not yet progressed far enough to eliminate labor altogether. So every day you're sitting in your chair, you're losing your pricing power. Uh, and that is why even at low levels of unemployment, people are not asking for higher wages because they know they don't deserve those higher wages. It's something that economics has a problem with because labor is supposed to be key ingredients. Capital was supposed to be scarce and allocated in some kind of a rational way through discounted cash flow models or capital asset pricing models. And it's really inputs of capital and labor that drives you. But what is happening is what is known as total factor productivity or multi-factor productivity, which is technology itself, becoming a bigger and bigger function. And as it increases, as I said, people find themselves out of tune. They feel they're not adding as much. And that's the essence of your Maslowian disappointment that's spreading the world. That's the essence, in my view, of all the social upheavals we have or unusual electoral outcomes that we're getting, that people feel that they're no longer as valuable. They feel that they're somehow displaced. Somehow they don't get the same satisfaction. Now, that feeling of displacement is likely to get much worse over the next decade or two. And so the whole essence of MMT policy, the whole essence of income and wealth redistribution policies is essentially to ease this pain. One of the examples I give is Iron Chancellor Bismarck in Germany in 1880s. He was the first one to introduce welfare policies, your pensions, your unemployment benefits. At the time, it was viewed as terrible. How could you do that? It's going to derail our economies. Well, it didn't. It didn't derail Second Industrial Revolution. In fact, it got stronger. Today's welfare policies are based on expectation that people are supposed to be working. Uh, and so it's designed essentially to help your transit from one job to another job. It uh, cracks down on abuses. You take the money and you're not looking for a job. But increasingly, that idea of transition from one job to another and welfare policies are supposed to help you in this transition is becoming obsolete. And that's where your minimum or basic income guarantee comes in. And I think 
one thing COVID-19 does and has done is massively propagate this idea. Because if you go back in time, we already had trials in Britain, in Finland, in Switzerland, in Japan, in the US, in Kenya, in Tanzania, in many countries. But nobody really fully embraces concept. I think after COVID-19, that concept will become much more palatable. So, Victor, I want to pick up on what you said there around the sort of move towards the idealized version of communism that Karl Marx had in his mind. It feels like what we're talking there is a purely economic system. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on how a transition towards an economic system that looks more like communism than it does capitalism can coexist with the democratic political structures that we have uh, across most of the Western world. Do you see a future where we have an economic system that is communist, but we maintain a political system that is democratic? Or do you think the political system will change as a result as well? Well, that's a very good question. And that's the second part of my book. Do we need to be free? And people say, what do you mean by that? Well, the success of Western societies over the last 500 years was building the idea that the more freedom you give people to exchange views, to interact, to explore the better economies work. The reason, as I describe in the book, that the Qing dynasty collapsed, the reason there is no more Ottoman Empire, the reason why Russia had a revolution and the Tsars are no longer with us, is that neither Russia nor the Ottomans nor the Chinese Empire ever understood that. And so the great ability of the West to give that freedom, to give enforceable legal rights, to give impartial judiciary, to give the common space was a winning formula for 500 years. That's the reason why England had industrial revolution and China collapsed. But as we go into the new world, and humans are no longer the key productivity drivers, we have abundance of capital, we have more capital than we can think what to do with it. As I said, we've got 10 times more financial instrument than the underlying economy. Uh, Most of our activities today are not very capital intensive at all. 60% of private sector GDP in the US is now not tangibles. Now, intangibles have almost no capacity limitations, not like factories and roads and machinery and humans and the rest of it. So if you sort of reach that stage. And if you go beyond that, and one of the things we highlight, an example of Russia, an interesting case of Nikolai Bukharin, a man who invented Gosplan. For your listeners, Gosplan was a central planning agency of the Soviet Union. And so in 1920, after Soviet Union, after revolution, tried the elimination of money, little red books, and all the rest of it, economy collapsed. And Lenin realized that unless he changes economic policy, people will kick the communists out of the power. So he gave Bukharin, young guy, a responsibility to redesign the system. And the way he tried to redesign it is by combining private initiative with state planning. In other words, he liberalized the agriculture, small to medium-sized enterprises, but he kept central planning. He created central planning. How do you allocate resources through the country? Ultimately, the experiment failed in late 20s, and of course, he was shot by Stalin by 1937. If you think of Deng Xiaoping in China in 1980, he basically resurrected Bukharin experiment and way, way beyond where Bukharin wanted to go. So the question we ask in this book is, was Bukharin wrong that central planning can allocate capital better than Adam Smith's invisible hand? Is it possible that that actually a better outcome? Or, 
And was he just 100 years ahead of his time? Because remember, he had no computers. He was tracking galoshes and nails by using files. But Xi Jinping in China today has computer power, and that computer power will get substantially stronger over the next 10 to 20 years. So is it possible that we no longer need as much of a free market as what we required over the previous 500 years? The same applies to inventiveness and exploration. What enabled West to succeed is that every academic was building on the shoulders of the previous generations. In China, everything was forgotten and the wheel had to be reinvented every 100 years from scratch. In other words, West encouraged not just education, but exploration, debate, argument. China never encouraged that. And so China failed, the West succeeded. Now, Today, what we have, we have a decline in demand for postdocs. Postdocs are PhDs who now finish their PhD and are looking for other things to do, and they're helping some of the staff at universities. Now, the reason we have a decline is that increasingly computers also are getting more and more powerful. Artificial intelligence are getting more and more powerful. They're actually starting even to make some discoveries. Now, today, it's nowhere near as flexible as human mind. But give it another 20 or 30 years, why should we allow a professor at Beijing University to act as Google Scholar? Why should we allow them to exchange views with other people in the field? You would say, hey, if you don't exchange the views, that's what happened to Imperial China. That's why they collapse. But if computers making discoveries, not humans, and if computers enhancing it, is it so important that professor at Beijing University has a freedom? to exchange views. Uh, and a third area, of course, uh, professions as well as social media and how you interact. Bill Clinton believed that internet will liberate the world. What we're seeing in Russia, what we're seeing in China, is that internet can be used very aggressively for negative purposes too. Technology is morally neutral. It can be used for evil just as much as it can be used for good. So the ability to mold behavior through technology today is like 1984 George Orwell. And so the question that the book raises, can we try to make sure that our personal freedom, at least some of them, survive and that we do not end up in a brutal, illiberal societies? Because it is possible that with technology, we could have very illiberal societies that no longer suffer from stagnation of ideas, innovation, and wealth. And what I discussed there is some of the policies that we can try to pursue, and some of them were already discussed, in order to try to keep as many of our freedoms as we possibly can. And therefore, we will actually could still end up with a democratic societies that enjoys very high level of productivity and a reasonable level of freedom. But the other side is totalitarian, illiberal, and brutal society. That's a difference between the Star Trek and Mad Max, I guess. <laughs> Victor, we've covered a lot of ground and there's a lot of big concepts and ideas to get our head around. As millennial investors, we obviously have a fair bit of time on our side when it comes to the equity markets and you know letting Compound do its thing. And I guess the big question is, what does this actually all mean for us as investors? And perhaps we can start with the major consideration that we need to be thinking about from a portfolio construction point of view over the next 50 years. 
Well, one of the things, if we just look over the next 10 years rather than 50, 50 is just too far away. <laughs> Five years. <laughs> well, one of the questions I uh, keep raising, if risk-free rate is zero and equity risk, equity risk premium and other risk premiums are zero, what is the valuation? Well, the answer, it's infinite, right? And so what happens uh, and what's happened over the last several decades, as central banks become more and more aggressive, as our leverage and financialization increase, risk-free rates collapsed. At the same time, as our leverage increase, central banks and public at large can no longer tolerate volatility of asset classes. And so risk premiums also collapse, which means cost of equity capital has collapsed. Even in emerging markets, in many places, it's only 5-6%. In some of the developed markets, it's only 3 or 4%. Now, when you reach a very low level of equi- cost of equity capital, almost any project becomes viable. And if almost any project becomes viable, everybody competes for those projects, which means returns on the projects also collapse. As returns on projects collapse, cost of equity capital has to go down even more to compensate for it. And so ultimately, the the answer is zero, okay? (laughs) That's your compounding. It's zero. But... But as you progress through this stage and as cost of equity capital gets very low, strange things start to happen. In other words, some companies that are capable of overcoming this huge gravitational forces pulling them down, some of those corporates become almost infinitely expensive. Because there's almost no valuation you can put on those companies. On the other hand, some of the companies which have traditional assets, traditional tangible assets, they're doing a decent job, become almost infinitely and ridiculously cheap. And also the companies that become infinitely expensive, if they actually stumble and for whatever reason can no longer maintain momentum, they also become infinitely cheap. Suddenly, in a matter of seconds, uh, the derating doesn't take terribly much time. So the question then becomes, in that sort of environment, how do you invest? Because as I've said earlier on, mean reversion in that environment doesn't really work. Value cannot maintain its momentum for any length of time. On the other hand, your extreme winners could become extreme losers incredibly fast. And if you look at some of the conventional companies running factories, roads, machinery, whatever, you know, good assets, uh, good balance sheet paying dividends, quite often the dividends you pick up, are you could lose easily in capital value. So you can't really adopt the yield approach as you go forward. On top of that, there are other issues are coming up. One of them are socially oriented. There is no question that millennials in Z generations have a completely different view of life compared to baby boomers. Millennials and Z are much more into sharing, are much more into community support. They ask the government to help them to resolve their issues. They also are much more into fairness. They're much more into equality, whereas baby boomers were all for efficiency, choice, and freedom, completely different concepts. And so as millennials in Z generation make their voice heard through electoral process and through the demographic process, a number of companies would need to change how they do things. So if you think about it, 80s and 90s was all about shareholder return as a criteria. 
But that was not the case in 50s and 60s. In 1950s, 60s, it was a social value of companies that was counted, not shareholder returns. So the question is, are we returning back to 50s and 60s that you need to derive social profits, not return to the shareholders? And overlaying that, of course, are ESG policies. In other words, everything to do with fairness, equality, environment, societal values. So corporates are changing at the same time. And one has to be very careful how one invests in a company because social backlash could be dramatic against some of the corporates. And on the other hand, some of them will be rewarded for some of these policies. But this is different to looking at price-earnings ratios, looking at the bond yields, at spreads. This is a completely different way of investing into the future. And so there is that involved. And then, of course, government will become more and more aggressive investing, spending. And so there will be some local companies that are completely in line with the government and will benefit from it. So you have such a variety of issues that as an investor you need to deal with. That to me explains why Warren Buffett seemed to be moving in a very erratic ways these days. Because this idea that Warren Buffett had of a good corporate with a moat around the castle protecting it, no longer relevant. Because a moat gets breached in a second. Before you know, there is this uh, Mongols uh, climbing the parapets uh, and your tower's already on fire. Before you even know, <laughs> before you know, it even happened. And so that explains some of the unusual moves, even very storied investors are increasingly making. And so to me, I basically recommend a couple of things. Number one, recognizing that that sort of intangibles will continue eating tangibles. It's a little bit like a black hole eating stars. So gradually, tangible values will become less and less relevant. Intangible, more and more relevant. People say, but how do I value intangibles? How I value IT, software, digital, social capital? Very hard. But as John Maynard Keynes once said, do you want to be precisely wrong or imprecisely correct? If you rely on tangibles, you're precisely wrong. If you try to assess intangibles, you will be imprecisely correct. And so intangibles will continue eating tangibles at a huge pace. And that's going to be one of the key criteria, which is still steering you to a variety of companies that can actually do quite well through this period. Uh, and so it becomes choosing companies that you will think become infinite because they're actually doing so well getting rid of companies that are infinite and just about to be derated, finding some local exposures uh, that are a little bit more protected and will not suffer as much, and trying to get your hand around social values and how those social values actually impact your investment. So, Victor, if we move away from stocks and bonds and we look at other investable asset classes, we mentioned gold in the game at the start and Bitcoin, but also things like property and commodities and stuff like that. How do you think some of these other asset classes will be affected by some of these societal and technological shifts that you write about in your book? In terms of commodities, in 1950s, 60s, 70s, commodities was a real capacity constraint. Today, increasingly, again, technology and financialization basically makes this constraint far less relevant. Just look what happened with the shell gas. Who knew shell gas 10 years ago, right? It's just amazing how commodities can actually come online so much faster than they used to 50 years ago. 
The other thing is that as we progress forward and a combination of cloud computing, digital combination of 3D printing, artificial intelligence will reduce demand for some of the commodities because increasingly you wouldn't need them because they're just molecules that you will recreate at your home. One set of commodities which is different is agribusiness. And I think this will be the last area ever to be disintermediated. But a lot of other commodities over the longer term might actually get disintermediated, whether it's oil as a basis of energy, whether it's the need for copper, cobalt, or, or many other things. But agri- agribusiness is going to be much, much tougher to disintermediate uh, as you go, uh, sort of as you go forward. Now, that doesn't mean commodities don't play a very important role over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Of course it does. They do. But longer term, a lot of that won't be relevant. Now, in the shorter term, the next sort of 5 years, 10 years, China will still be the key determinant. And given that China consuming so much in terms of commodities, the question becomes, what would China do? China increasingly becoming less capital intensive and less commodity intensive. And replacing China is almost impossible for major commodity players. You really need Indian subcontinent, Middle East and Africa to start going, which is about the same size as China itself. But the problem is investments in some of those areas are more like enlightened donation. This is why we were calling for, in the book, we were calling for a major enlightened Marshall Plan for the least developed countries because they really can't invest that easily. So the the commodity side will be a little bit dependent on the speed of sort of disintermediation on the one side and how commodity intensive or less commodity intensive China is going to become over the next five, 10 years and how much other countries globally can actually pick up some of that slack. So unlike gold, which is clearly to me is an insurance policy for things really getting wrong. And I think it's a very good insurance policy. Commodities is a little bit questionable exactly where they're going to end up. Now, in terms of uh, real estate and properties, again, it's a very heterogeneous group. There's commercial real estate, there is residential real estate, but it also will depend how government policies are going to change, whether we are going to have a period of continuing monetary policies, whether we're going to switch more into fiscal and monetary policy. Because remember, under MMT, you actually will have higher productivity. Under MMT, you will rely on financialization less than on the pure monetary system. Under MMT, the government might even allow a bit of volatility. Now, what that means, monetary system, as we've been running over the last 30, 40 years, encourages speculation, whether it is uh, financing unicorns, flipping the flats, whatever, it encourages financial speculation. MMT policy, someone discourages it. In other words, some of the capital will become endeared by the state and invested in different areas. And therefore, some of the unicorns might not get funded as much. Some of the flat flipping might not actually go as well as it did over the previous three decades. So it really depends uh, which part of the real estate market you are. And the same applies to commercial. I think we do have a very significant shift that will continue to go through. We already had it for 20 years before coronavirus. Remember, in developed countries, 20-25% of people are already employed in gig economy in various forms. 
Now, that by itself also already reducing some of the demand for commercial real estate. Now, if you go forward, I think coronavirus accelerating that substantially. So it's not totally clear how much of that commercial real estate actually will be needed. One area most people will say, and that's probably true, a very, very high end residential real estate might be okay. And and that's probably is true. But it has to be very, very high end. We're not talking about the middle. So, Victor, uh, we we love bold predictions here at Equity Mates. Every year, Bryce and I dedicate an episode at the start of the year to making bold predictions. I predicted there would be a $2 trillion company in 2020. Thank you, Apple, for that. Bryce made the <laughs> prediction that uh, CSL would be Australia's largest company by market cap by the end of the year. He's looking good there. And when we, when we have an expert on, uh, we do like to pick their brains and ask them for a bold prediction. So I'm not going to ask you what asset class will be the best performing by 2050 if with under all these changes. Although if you want to predict that, uh, you're more than welcome to. But I'm wondering, as we get towards the end of the interview today, do you have a bold prediction for you know markets or whatever asset classes you're looking at in the context of some of the things we've spoken about today? Do you have a bold prediction for the coming years? Uh, In the shorter term, the biggest decision that investors will have to make is that whether, in fact, the fusion of fiscal and monetary policy that we're experiencing will result in a much higher inflationary outcomes in the next several years. Because remember, for the last several decades, we resided effectively in a disinflationary climate. That benefited certain asset styles, like growth, for example, that eventually destroyed value as an asset class. But as we change policies away from monetary, are we going to see a significant shift in how people invest. And one of the things to highlight is that we had those shifts before. In 1972, Nifty 50, Americans' Nifty 50s were destroyed. Now, in 50s and 60s, Nifty 50 were benefiting from massive middle-class creation in the U.S. Some of them are trading at 50, 60 times earnings. In 72, 73, they were totally slaughtered. And the reason they were slaughtered is that inflation took off. And much more mean reversionary styles came back until about mid-90s, when the new growth styles appeared. And so for the last several decades, the preference was for growth, and that's why your prediction on Apple came true or CSL came true. It was mostly about growth. It was mostly about thematics that was driving us. Now, if we assume that the monetary world is sunsetting in its pure form, then should we actually change that? And what's going to break some of those predictions are the change from disinflation to inflation. Now, my personal view is that we will not be able to break disinflationary straitjacket. As I said earlier, if you want to create Zimbabwe, you can do it tomorrow. But for most countries, that is not going to be the answer. And so to me, disinflationary pressures will remain much stronger than what MMT will create in terms of inflation. Because as I said, to me, more monetary theory, just trying to reduce disinflation rather than create significant inflation. Now, if that is the answer, then thematic type investment will still do well. But if inflation is not correct, at least for a period of several years, the styles could alter dramatically. And literally in the next 12 to 18 months, that will determine the future of most professional investors. 
So, Victor, we like to end our interviews with the same final three questions. Before we get into them, aside from your book, which people should all uh, check out, and I'm sure many of our listeners during this conversation have jumped online and bought it, but aside from the book that people can find in the show notes, is there anywhere else that they can go online to follow you? Are you uh, active on any social media or anything like that? I prefer to use LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my uh, preferred sort of, I, I guess by nature what I do and by nature what I write, it's a little bit less suitable for the Facebook and, and, and much more and much more suitable and much more suitable to LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is my preferred sort of social medium. And some of your listeners might be customers of uh, uh, Macquarie Bank. And uh, clearly there is uh, plenty of notes and reports on the more specific issues rather than just long-range issues we've discussed today that they can read up on. I'm sure if they're not, after hearing you talk today, some of them will be uh, signing up to get more of your analysis. So, Victor, we'll jump into the final three questions. The first one is, do you have any books that you consider must-read? It depends what people prefer to, to get to know better. There are very good technology-based books. People like uh, Bernson and McCarthy on platforms, uh, technology platforms in Machine Age, Martin Ford, you know, Arrival of the Robots, Kurzweil books on Singularity. There is a lot that they can find at the back of my book. I actually list biography. A lot of those sorts of books that they will find interesting. If, on the other hand, they're more politically inclined, and they're looking more at social and political issues. Yuval Harari's sort of magisterial, I guess, uh, trilogy on the fate of human race is is very interesting. The same applies to Darren Asimoglu and Robinson books on why countries succeed and countries f- uh, fail. Francis Fukuyama social books are very, very good. If they want to look more from a debt perspective, one book will be by Eddie Turner on debt, which basically asks the question why we no longer can function without so much debt prevalent in the system itself. There are many books like that. The reason for writing my book essentially was that I couldn't find anyone that actually puts history, politics, sociology, economics and markets all in one. So if you read Francis Fukuyama books, it's very good discourse on social issues, but there is nothing there about the markets, nothing there about economies. If you think of uh, Mervyn King book on finance or Eddie Turner book, there's quite a lot on debt, uh, quite a lot on, on other things, but there's very little on technology. There is very little on the politics. If you think of Martin Ford or Beyonce and McCarthy or Kurzweil, there is a lot of activity excellent stuff on technology. But what it's missing, in my view, what does it mean? (laughs) What does it mean for societies? What does it mean for markets? Yuval Harari, wonderful discussions, what it means for societies, but there is nothing relating to markets. What does it mean for economies? And so my book, I try to be sort of in the middle between that. There is also terrific books that you find in the bibliography on the history. What happened to Ottoman Empire? What happened to Russian Empire? What happened to China? And again, there is a plenty of books around industrial revolution, around China. But again, none of them are forward-looking, either in terms of technology or in terms of social spheres. By definition, therefore, when you take such a wide view the way I have, in every one of those sections, whether history-oriented or future-oriented, you can't be as comprehensive 
flavors experts in those areas are. And experts, of course, will complain and argue that they didn't go into enough depths. But my objective was really to link all of that and answer what does it mean. And probably the biggest contribution that the book makes is combining financialization and technology, what I call Fujiwara effect. Fujiwara is when two hurricanes merge. Happens very, very seldom. By the way, it almost happened the other week uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. But it happens very seldom that the two hurricanes actually merge into one. And so what I describe is that we have two hurricanes. One is financialization that what we inflicted upon ourselves, the debt we inflicted upon ourselves over the last three, four decades. And the other one is technology, human spirit, ingenuity. Now, remember, technology would never have progressed if cost of capital wasn't that low. The ingenuity is good, but the speed with which it progresses depends on the cost of capital. So if we did not financialize, technology would not have progressed. If actually financialization is pouring kerosene on a bonfire of the information age. And it's really the mix of the two which is accelerating our, our fall towards a black hole. And so the other major contribution, I guess, is our discussion what lies on the other side of the black hole and discussion we have, do we need to be free? Under what circumstances we might actually end up with a very illiberal orders without, uh, without a set stagnation of ideas or wealth? So, Victor, the second question that we like to ask is, uh, what's your go-to source for investing and financial information? Okay, in the in the shorter term horizons, I am a Bloomberg user and I do use Bloomberg a lot. Most of my clients and most of the investors do the same. From an economic perspective, there is a variety of exceptionally good sites uh, that you can access. Most of them are, are free or, or near free. So to me, it's a mix of economic websites as well as uh, Bloomberg. That's one. And then... Uh... If you think back to your younger self, you know, when you were looking at companies like uh, the Adelaide Steamship uh, Company, what advice would you have for your younger self? Well, it's a very interesting question because I have two sons uh, in a college in the U.S. right now. And when one of my, when my younger son, he's at the University of Chicago, asked me, what major should I declare? Because in the U.S. universities, you don't need to declare major until much later in your studies. Should I do computer science? Everybody these days want to be a computer science graduate. Well, my answer to him was, if you cannot solve a computer science problem, can you go to sleep? If the answer is yes, you can go to sleep, then you should not be doing computer science. Because even though you are good, you're not going to be as good. And ultimately, you probably will be connecting cables in the offices. Because only, <laughs> only the top maybe 5% can actually add value increasingly as we go forward. So is the future of humanity if it is not humanity itself? Instead of creating very narrow experts in a very, very narrow niches, which is what industrial revolution was doing, what you should do is to bring 
bring up humanity itself. And so my answer to my children is that in my days, it was easy to predict what you should do. In the modern age, it is much, much harder. Uh, And you should do whatever you think you enjoy and whatever you think you should be good at. In terms of the investment research, if you are unlucky enough to decide that your career is going to be in investment research, and if that is what you like doing, uh, to me, it's a keeping an open mind. Try not to read other people's research. Try not to follow your competitors because they pollute your mind and they deprive you from making choices and decisions that you otherwise would make. Because people are hardwired to follow the crowd. People are hardwired to be part of a society. People are petrified of making wrong turns. And so my suggestion, just keeping a very open mind and realizing that uh, neither economics nor finance theories have a great deal of applicability to the world that you're going into. And you need to try to be as broadly based as possible from history to politics to behavioral science to psychology uh, to corporates that you do to markets and how people react are much more broadly based. Victor, thank you so much for your time it's been an unbelievably interesting conversation and you have left us with so much to think about um absolutely encourage our audience to go out and buy your book to dig even deeper into a lot of the topics that we covered today but you know on behalf of all of our audience a massive thank you for your time today we appreciate you coming on thank you very much guys and look forward to being your guest next time perhaps Something. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're going to be following up on that bold prediction. So uh, <laughs> stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.